So I wanted to start by introducing our speakers, and it, one of our speakers unfortunately couldn't make it for today, so we have a delegate in place for him. Uh, Michael Shannon uh, had to... Michael Hirsch had Hirsch, to had a illness. So I'm 11, I am um, his spouse girl, and I will be reading his remarks today. In, and would you like to introduce yourselves before we all start? Uh, sure, yeah, I'm Shannon Walsh. I um, work at the University of Auckland in New Zealand and I also work as a researcher and organiser for a tank tank called Economic and Social Research Aotearoa, uh, which is what I'm going to be talking about today. I'm, uh, my name is Steve Lyons. I am a postdoctoral fellow at uh, University of Pittsburgh and i also a core member of the collective Mountain Alternative, uh, which works at the intersection of art, activism and theory. Uh, we'll be talking today about some some uh, some of the sort of theoretical considerations uh, behind uh, our latest project, which is called the, the Natural History Museum, uh, which is a. Um, well, I'll get into it. Right now. Okay, um, I will begin. <coughs> uh, Michael's um, focus was in talking about journalism, how the current structure um, got into place and the implications for, um, for us as socialists. Uh, on May 1904, socialist standout Eugene Debs wrote to the metal worker, a trade union paper that the editor of trade union paper, that the editor of a labor paper is of far more importance to the union and the movement than the president or any other officer of the union. He ought to be chosen with special reference to his knowledge upon the labor questions and his fitness to advocate and defend the economic interests of the class he represents. Those were good words when Debs penned them. Voiced in 2019, the statement is barely descriptive of any American or Canadian union publication, the lot of which have mostly morphed into glossy occasional quarterlies that pump up elected officials and trumpet incremental gains for union members, even as the US Trump-dominated Labor Department and the reactionary high court's majority decisions are making union membership scarce. The liberal media, ostensibly the guardians of citizens' liberties, the subject of this talk, are no light onto nations either. <coughs> Certainly the liberal literati, as well as the left, knows a good deal about the depredations of the far right from H.L. Mencken's eviscerations of the Republican Party for the Teapot Dome scandal, to the path-breaking work of today's admirable Jane Mayer, Andy Goodman, <coughs> the streaming Young Turks, and miscellaneous writers for the Nation magazine and others. We know about the Koch brothers and array of billionaire reactionaries backing and benefiting from Donald Trump. Thanks to gutsy reporters, including those from social media venues such as The Intercept, I would say the Southern Poverty Law Center, <clears throat> we even have a handle on the resurgence of white nationalism and errant fascist efforts, though it is stunning how few breakthrough stories featured on the incisive nonprofit Center for Media and Democracy or ProPublica um, Pro or even from the occasionally newsmaking talking points memo are ever reported on MSNBC or CNN. <coughs> um, I think the key that he's trying, point he's trying to make is that if you watch MSNBC or you watch CNN, we, you, uh, we do get, get no information about why people are coming up 
from um, Central America, from Honduras, from Salvador, um, from Guatemala. And what the U.S.'s role was in creating the conditions that are making everybody leave. What's particularly galling to me is that what's happening in Honduras is um, the re responsibility of Obama and Clinton and Clinton because they allowed the coup to take place and, um, and then did nothing to stop it or to delegitimize what happened. <clears throat> um, a knock on Trump by lines den of liberal commentators that he collapses the wall that ideally separates the legal from the political is true enough, but hardly peculiar to Trump. When was that wall not permeable, let alone sacrosanct? from the time of Andrew Jackson, we confer with Richard Nixon, until now. When has venal politics not surmounted the law? Much of the press has always operated by using what today we call clickbaiting or sexing up headlines and stories that are a little more than celebrity gossip or issues deserving sober attention by the media. Even on Middle East con Coverage with the press is thankfully not warming up to the new far-right Israeli government alliance or the likely backward homicidal pol um, policy implications of the new barbarous coalition government. Israel's crimes against humanity run much deeper than Netanyahu and his orthodox running mates. They go far back at least to the Nakba, if we are to be honest. Much liberal reporting owes its origins to Walter Lippmann and the founders of the Monthly New Republic, and this is the heart of what he wanted to talk about. Lippmann's credo, as a very young man, had been a moderate form of socialism. His values changed with his proximity to the great and the near great as he embraced an elitist concept of reform, whose significant markers were professionalism, <clears throat> science, and social control. Along with Herbert Crowley, he founded the New Republic magazine and became the foremost advocate of what Crowley named the New Nationalism to replace the insular foreign policy outlook. Calling himself a progressive, he was in fact an imperialist in all but name. A supporter of U.S. entry on the Allied side in World War I, he insisted that the supreme task of world politics is not the prevention of war, but a satisfactory organization of mankind. Lippmann was in many ways what we refugees from the 60s would have called a factual minority. <coughs> As when he excoriated and mischaracterized former friends John Reed and Upton Sinclair for the great crime of over-romanticizing common people. He called Sinclair, author of The Jungle, forever the dupe of his own sincerity, imagining that the intensity of his feeling is a substitute for a clear-eyed vision of fact. And so what we have here is, <clears throat> again, um, you know, journalism is quote unquote fact, as opposed to, um, for lack of a better way to put it, honesty. <clears throat> of John Reed, he wrote in the New Republic, this after reading Reed's brilliant essays on the Mexican Revolution that Reed did not judge. He identified himself with the struggle and gradually what he saw mingled with what he hoped. Whenever his sympathies marched with the facts, Reed was superb. But where his feelings conflicted with the facts, his vision flicked by temperament. He is not a professional writer or reporter. He is a person who enjoyed himself. Unlike the populists <coughs> who wanted to break up the trust, 
the circle of savants around the New Republic argued that unrestricted competition was no longer for controlling the excesses of big business. They argued with some truth that new trusts would only reappear as competition among downsized businesses inevitably slackened as the new cartels emerged. As progressives, Lippmann and the others preferred intervention by tough government agencies run by professional, that is, by experts, a solution much the same as today's liberals posit. And I'm certainly Stacey Abrams and uh, uh, Warren are in that category. If Lippmann and his circle had a coda, it was as exemplified in his book, Public Opinion, that the public was only concerned with local issues, uninterested when not actively, dis well, when not actively disinterested in policy. For Lippmann and company, an elite, educated, and compassionate governing class was necessary. It, and not the public, was the instrument of social reform. His model government for, but not intrinsically by the people, a modern analog would be the brain, test, brain trust around Clinton's and the mainstream Democrats. What else were Hillary and friends peddling but an appeal to their own reputed expertise and rallying against the thuggish, rank, amateur, and misogynist Trump and his idolaters or the growth of libertarian theology, which seeks to shrink government to what it calls its essence? That is, the protection of individual and property rights alone. Do these exhaust the possibilities of democratic rule? What else is MSNBC peddling in 24-7? <clears throat> Still, it does not obligate Marxists to willy-nilly embrace united fronts as anything more than tactical and contingent necessities. Liberals and socialists may not be today's blood enemies, but neither are we co-thinkers, boon companions, or much of even friends. Crusading organizations that target the depredations of the far right, such as the Southern Poverty Law Center and the ACLU, are not, or not yet, anti-capitalism. This is not a knock on what they do, but a statement of what needs doing, too. <clears throat> yes, I recognize how difficult it is to create an anti-capitalist reporting practice in a multifaceted protein industry. Even when a work is markedly anti-capitalist, such as Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, <clears throat> first hard-hand reporting on abysmally hellish working conditions in the Chicago stockyards, it was misread, viewed less as an evocation of exploitation at the point of production, and more as an expose <clears throat> of the dangerous, contaminated quality of the marketed product. Sinclair famously said, it was aimed at the public's heart, and by accident, I hit it in the stomach. Shortly, um, I'm gonna. Um, even in its heyday, the daily press was never Lippmann's vaunted guardian of truth. Press barons controlled the news, and with rare exception, did so in their own interests. The New Republic, from its founding, was subsidized by Standard Oil dollars. The Oaks and Salzburger families run and still run the Times though funding and investment advice from Warren Buffett was invaluable to the family. The Washington Post, as we all know, is now in the control of Amazon and Jeff Bezos. As in the major um, publications and communication vehicles are owned by Murdoch or Philip Anshu, who is out of Denver. There also is the network um, Sinclair, it's a, uh, they run tele local television stations. 
that um, control the media, that, that control the message, and have um, requirements for each state, um, each, for all of their affiliates to run right-wing commentary. Some places are more creative than others in that they run them at 3.30 in the morning when no one's watching, but it's, they still have to run it for people who lose their jobs. <clears throat> so it's not news that the press is controlled by corporate entities pursuing parochial aims. What needs stressing is how little of an oppositional posture is prevalent in what is considered straight reporting. Even a source as reliable as New Yorker's Jane Mayer, whose co-authored books on the invidious Clarence Thomas is a classic, as is her more recent Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right, which exposes the machinations of um, the Koch brothers. It does so without artic articulating anything resembling an alternative worldview beyond a pan to objective investigative reporting. Like a former Times colleague and sometime co-author Jill Abramson, who just released Merchants of Truth, The Business and News and the Fight for Facts, is a deep dive into the threat to investigative and long-form journalism that comes through the decline of the dailies and the rise of social media, in her case, Facebook, BuzzFeed, The Huffington Post. There is no corresponding critique from either Mayer or Abramson of why the news at its best is so politically laggard. There is no effort to explain why every imperial adventure is initially valorized if extended mea culpas are issued long after the fact. As with everything from Vietnam to Iraq, though it's too soon to expect takebacks for Afghanistan and Venezuela. Worst of all, there is no socially redeeming politics offered in the mix. What was once known as the vision of a cooperative commonwealth, which framed as socialism is the only valid response to the right's anti-statist garages, Abramson even salutes Dan Graham, Don Graham, the sign of the family that ran the Washington Post until it was passed to a niece and then sold to Jeff Bezos. Uh, <clears throat> um, note that I make no claims that anti-capitalist journalism is easy, requiring only a will to do it. And it will take a movement, turning over millions of rocks to expose the creatures below. It will also take funding sources independent of capital more than likely munificent contributions from members of a mass socialist party who need and demand real news. Certainly nonprofits that can subsidize publications, both print, online, and social media, in order to sustain insurgent quality, long-form abiding publications are desirable too. Even the London Guardian now hits up its web readers, its web readers for contributions at the bottom of every web-posted story. And I think we all know that The Guardian is no beacon of light either in their constant criticisms of Corbyn. A class struggle informed journalism will also require writers with a sensibility for fleshing out how capitalism as a social system is right with the contradiction of a collective life for millions, even as its benefits are segregated for a shrinking minority. It goes beyond the rhetoric of social democrats who would complement political forms with economic democracy, but leave that effort at a patchwork of isolated reforms as necessary as those are tactically. It means being more ambitious, incisive, concrete, and thorough in reporting on every instance of where minority rules or benefits from minority rule 
It also means showing how resistance works, trumpeting its victories, and being forthright about mistakes and um, excesses. <clears throat> Let me close with words that are not mine that raise lingering concerns about the ongoing trivialization of news reporting. As Matt Taibbi noted in his soon-to-be-released Hate Inc., Why Today's Media Makes Us Despise One Another, the modern media business is all about identifying demographics and serving them a steady diet of affirming opinion. If you feel negatively about any group or subject, we will serve you the information that enhances the feeling. When you're angry, we'll make you angrier. When you feel you're thinking on your own too much, we'll nudge you back toward the sensational and the non-reflective. The goal is to keep you spinning in an endless cycle of disgust and impotent anger. It is the ultimate Aurelian trick, a consumer business in which the product is your own frustration. You are our power source. The unhappier you are, the more money we make. As the French and Italian radicals of an earlier generation put it, the struggle continues. Journalists must join the struggle too. Really Thank you, Thank you so much. Just run straight through and then we'll chat at the end. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, I'm Shannon Walsh. I introduced myself before. Um, I'm, I'm going to talk about um, this idea of the Think Tank as a strategy for the left. But I should just, a brief disclaimer first. My academic research focuses on uh, science and innovation policy, a kind of Marxist critique of that. Um, and I also teach critical research methods. Uh, at the University of Auckland, but I'm, I kind of wanted to take off my academic cap today and talk about my experience organizing for Economic and Social Research Aotearoa, this think tank uh, that's uh, New Zealand, uh, Aotearoa New Zealand's only, uh, first and only left-wing think tank in its history. I would also like to out my two colleagues here who are both for the think tank as well. So this is Campbell Jones and Natalie Jart. Uh, we're both from the University of Auckland, um, so in the discussion time I'm expecting <laughs> they'll chip in with their experiences as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I wanted to consider the think tank as a strategy uh, for the left and consider the sort of limits and opportunities uh, that come with this. Um, and so this is this idea of forming some kind of independent institution, an institution of knowledge um, that can articulate and promote alternative visions of the economy and society uh, outside of the traditional university system. Um, and, and, and this is something that has been uh, hugely influential at least in terms of the, the right and the neoliberal um, uh, right in the 20th century. So the classic example of, of the think tank as a strategy comes from the Mont Pelerin Society, which I've already heard people speaking about at this conference, um, really briefly formed in 1947 by Friedrich Hayek, uh, and was formed mostly of economists, but a lot of liberal philosophers, with this um, aim to revi revive um, classic liberalism in the face of like Keynesian uh, economic um, sort of way uh, thinking. Um, and one, one sort of important thing about uh, the Montpellier Society is that it was marginal for a very, very long time. It was on the margins of economics. It wasn't uh, uh, hugely popular um, because the, the sort of reigning hegemony of economics was Keynesianism at the time. Um, and that was until sort of the, the 70s and through the 80s until that ideology that they were peddling was taken up uh, and then spread across the world. Uh, it happened in, in New Zealand, we're from. Obviously, it happened here. It happened very violently in Chile in '73. Uh, um, and so, so suddenly, after some 30 years of doing research and peddling these ideas, they suddenly became mainstream. 
And so, so that kind of, for, for the way that this has been talked about, um, that kind of sets the frame for this idea of the think tank as a strategy. So it's set up the, the institution, you develop the knowledge, you articulate your position, and then hopefully one day something happens and it gets taken up. So I, I kind of have some issues with that framing um, in terms of how, how the left could reproduce that idea. I think there's some things about being of the left that prevent us from, from taking that model and just re reproducing it. And so I want to talk about the, the two, what I see as the limits to taking up this idea on the left. Uh, so I'll speak about those two limits uh, and then I will offer something that's a more, more positive that can come out of um, that model. So the first, the first limit I want to talk about is, is really uh, practical limits and the second uh, is a more sort of methodological or epistemological uh, uh, limit of, of left organising in terms of being a think tank. So pra practical limits, um, is, it's really simple. Uh, if you're of the left, uh, you're likely to have a lot less time and a lot less money than um, the think tanks of the right. And think tanks of the right are funded by banks and big uh, interest organisations. Typically on the left, we don't have access to or any access to the, those kind of um, sources of revenue are really problematic and ethically problematic. So, so we, don't, we don't want to take money from banks. Um, and the other thing is time. Um, it, 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 people organising on the left tend to be um, busier. They tend to have a lot of other um, personal reproductive commitments, uh, and and they can't, they're not the kind of people who are paying people to do their housework, etc. So, so time becomes a, an issue. So, with uh, Ezra as the example, we launched um, just just short of three years ago, in 2016. Um, and and it's it's kind of sad to reflect on. I mean, we've done some great work, and I'm really proud of what we've done. But at the same time, and these two will um, agree with me, a lot of that time in those three years has just been keeping the organisation afloat. Just having it exist, uh, a, lot of, a lot of time and energy has gone into um, just making sure that the thing continues. Um, and so that's really, really, I think, um, taken up a lot of our energy um, in, in these first three years just to, just to survive. Um, and that's also my kind of um, way to, to, to um, apologize for the crude gesture of um, trying to sell you all things. So I have a, our book and these tote bags for sale if people are interested. The book, 10 bucks, 5 bucks for a tote bag if you want one afterwards, um, come talk to me. So that's the practical limits. I think these are limits that any left organization is going to come across, um, and I'm sure you're all familiar with, with them. But uh, the second, the second uh, uh, limit, or lim not limit, but something with with taking into consideration of how these strategies might differ um, on on the left, is this this question of method and the way we go about um, the way we go about doing our research, and and this is more of an affirmation for me through my experience rather than a kind of intellectual thing. But um, as we've developed our research and been working in in New Zealand, uh, specifically in Auckland, but then extending up through some other cities. Um, it's really become apparent that uh, our research needs to be grounded in the place that we are. Um, and so that's really specific in, in New Zealand. And I'll give you a little, uh, soon I'll give you a little um, outline of sort of some of the specificities of being in New Zealand and how that might differ. And I'd be really interested to hear from, from y'all from somewhere else what, what that might look like um, here. So um, New Zealand is a settler colonial state. I'm, I'm not sure what you know um, about New Zealand, but uh, fairly late in terms of the British um, British colonial project, so the, the colonisation of um, New Zealand only um, really began in earnest in the very late 1830s. Um, it wasn't um, 
immediately sponsored by the British government. It was actually done through a private company and the British government um, took over when, when that was starting to cause real, real problems. Um, the the um, British government, I've got a quote here, um, actually opposed the colonisation of New Zealand to begin with, and this is a quote from, from the colonial office. Uh, this, this proposal of uh, colonising New Zealand proposes the acquisition of a sovereignty in New Zealand which would infallibly issue in the conquest and extermination of the present inhabitants. So this is from the 1830s, before the official colonial project began in New Zealand. Um, part of the reason of this is that, that in New Zealand, in pre-colonial times, there was a, a fairly dense population. So there's like about 100 to 200,000 of the um, indigenous Maori in, inhabiting the country, and they had a really um, intense, complex political system already established and already in place, and as well as complex trade routes throughout the Pacific into Australia. Um, so so the, there, was, there was a sovereignty already recognised by um, a lot of the British Parliament, and that's, I think that's a thing that a lot of people don't... Um, realize about about New Zealand. So yeah, this colonization was kind of forced through private initiatives, through financial initiatives. I have a, a colleague who wrote a, a fantastic master's thesis on the financial colonization of New Zealand, which just, out, just really clear, historically outlines how this um, was taking place. Um, so the point of all, all of that context is that, um, is, is to kind of try to communicate how uh, when you're organizing in the left in New Zealand, in Aotearoa, um, you have to necessarily be engaged with these um, complex political systems because as much as the colonial forces tried to destroy uh, Maori organising and Maori political systems, they didn't. And they, they um, were resilient, they remained, and they got a lot stronger and they, get, they continue to get a lot stronger. So for us, uh, as on the left organising in New Zealand, questions about decolonisation and, and uh, questions of engaging with indigenous politics are some kind of optional extra that they're equal on par with anti-capitalist organizing. You can't just say, oh, I'm an anti-capitalist, but I don't think about questions of colonization. Those things are totally embedded. And if you were to try to organize uh, without taking that into consideration, in consideration you'd, just get, you'd just get pushed out of an organization. It just, it just wouldn't happen. Um, so another point about that, and this is um, slightly more personal, but um, this is, the word socialism has a much different meaning in New Zealand. It's, it is, it do, does get used and it has, a, it has its own history, um, but because of the European origins of the idea and of socialism and, and the uh, theories around it, um, it's, it's not a word that, that can be readily just transplanted, transposed into New Zealand. You need to think about uh, how that is, comes from Europe and what, what the um, assumptions uh, that are brought in with, with, along with that. Um, how am I going for time? Like another couple of minutes? No, so far. Okay, cool. I might. Um, I might ask, I'm gonna skip that part out and talk about that maybe in the. So, reflecting on like how we how we organise as a think tank, um, I think all of this means that uh, our research process uh, is a lot slower than than you might think, and and certainly a lot slower than what uh, you'd experience in a in the academy. Um, and it's it's more about um, relationship building and and working with uh, the already existing communities rather than kind of coming up with these great ideas and then trans transmitting them throughout society. Um, and importantly, I think that um, involves a, a, a sort of quite a strong degree of humility and of listening to other communities and listening to and learning from other communities and sort of not not entering into these spaces with too many preconceived ideas about um, about the world and about socialism, about what needs to be done. Um, listening to people and learning from and finding those points of connection 
um, rather than arguing your point. Um, and in that sense, and I'm thinking about stuff I heard yesterday, there's, there's no uh, space for like a kind of vanguardist intellectual um, position in Aotearoa. You're going to be really isolated if you try to come at things like that. Um, so, what is my main point? Um, it, I think this think tank strategy on the left, and I think this might be true elsewhere rather than uh, just New Zealand, but that to do a proper left think tank, you'll need to, you need to develop um, and articulate and expand your connections within, within a space, starting from uh, where you are, um, and then, and then drawing out those connections with the wider left community. Um, and what this means, I think, and, and maybe this is more true of New Zealand than um, here, I'm not sure, but um, it's sort of finding your own path through these discourses uh, and sometimes your own language. So it's not about importing Marxist, all of Marxist language, even though theoretically um, Marx is completely right uh, and, and uh, really useful for analyzing the situation. It's about sort of using those things and negotiating the spaces that already exist and, and coming up with your own that sort of grounded uh, uh, ideas about um, organizing and about power to move forward. Um, yeah, okay, so those are, those are the sort of things that I saw as, as making left think tanks different to right think tanks if we're talking about strategy. But the one positive lesson that I'll end on that I wanted to take away from the example of the non-power society is this idea of sustainability and, and, and of kind of shifting uh, our, our organisational thinking around temporality and how long things take. So, so the Mount Parliament Society, they sustain themselves in, in spite of the fact that they are marginal. Well, we're a left think tank in uh, New Zealand. We're very we're right on the margins. Our stuff hardly ever gets picked up. It does occasionally get picked up into media, but um, we've got a lot of work to do, and it's going to take a long time to get to the point where we kind of, you know, the, the news calls us right away. Um, so, so this idea of building institutions for the future, building institutions not for us, uh, it's when, when some event happens to sort of say, okay, we've got the idea, it might be a few generations time, it might be 40, 50, 100 years time. And, and organizing it in a way where that temporality is actually quite real for us, I think, is something to take, to take from the Mount, Mount Pelerin Society. That's also something that I've learned from organizing within Aotearoa within New Zealand. And if people want to look at this, you don't have to buy it, but there's some articles in here that sort of have outlined other projects uh, through the Māori organisation that have done similar things. So I think I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Thank you, Paul. That was really uh, yeah. interesting. I've got a lot of, um, a lot of ideas there. Um, I'm going to uh, present on um, a concept that, that I'm describing very hesitantly as institutional splitting, uh, which is both a perspective on institutions, established institutions uh, within capitalism, um, and a tactic of engagement. So I'd like to begin with a quote from the 1979 pamphlet, uh, In and Against the State, by the London Edinburgh Weekend Return Group, a text that explores the predicament of what the group calls after-hours socialism. So they write, we spend our evenings and weekends struggling against capitalism, and our days working diligently as agents of the capitalist state to reproduce the capitalist system. Like Penelope in the Greek myth, we stitch the tapestry of bourgeois society every day and attempt each night to, to unravel it before dawn. This was the dilemma for much of the British left in 1980, and we would do well to return to the questions that it provoked for this group. They write again, 
Can we shape our daily activity in such a way as to avoid stitching capitalist tapestry? Can we hinder rather than promote the reproduction of capitalist social relations? Does the fact that our work is situated in the state give us special opportunities in this respect, or is that merely a reformist illusion? So our British comrades were writing at a transitional moment in British political history. Thatcher's Tories were striking the first blows against the welfare state. The Labour Party was torn between radical factions, such as the Greater London Council, uh, by, uh, led by Ken Livingston, and the growing status quo that would see the new Labour politics of Tony Blair. Working class and poor people were disillusioned and disenfranchised and faced with cuts to the public sector and in the increasing privatization of what remained of the commons, some activists on the left responded by defending the state. So while certainly understandable, the urge to defend the state from privatization stems from a misrecognition that the capitalist state is ours to protect. But as our British comrades make very clear, the capitalist state is not our state, it's their state. The capitalist state holds valuable social resources, but distributes them in ways that produce oppressive social relations. The task, as they put it, is to devise ways of working in and against the state, of turning state resources against the capitalist social relations that they reproduce. So if in Thatcherite Britain, after our socialism was clearly insufficient, the 24-7 work cycle of contemporary neoliberal capitalism has only intensified this dilemma. Many of us don't have evenings or weekends, our relation to work is unbounded by clock time. But this hasn't stopped us from proceeding as a predicament of after our socialism, we're not a problem. Occupy Wall Street's commitment to the ideal of direct democracy and the apparatus of the General Assembly was a case in point. As a prefiguration of a world without work, it did much to enliven and popularize a new socialist imaginary. But for all the talk about democratic participation for all, the General Assembly was built around a constitutive exclusion. As not an alternative, the group I work with reflected in the moment's immediate after, movement's immediate aftermath, quote, those who could not show up in person could not participate. Working people, whether waged or unwaged, in the paid labor market or caring for others, were disadvantaged by the basic structure of the movement. And because Occupy so celebrated direct democracy, those who could not attend were not even represented in the discussion. There are no procedures for discovering and considering their views. And so the dilemma flagged by our British comrades in 1979 is still very much alive, as is the urgent question of how to build a socialist insurgency in and against the state. The incapacity of Occupy, among other popular movements, to sustain themselves, a contradiction inscribed in the very form of the direct assembly, has led activists and theorists to return to the question of organization. I think that's what the think tank is operating within. So for Rodrigo Nunes, the operative question is how to prevent that degree of mobilization from dissipating. So how to channel that powerful, if diffuse, desire for radical change into a struggle capable of rendering it effective. So Philip Murawski has influentially argued for a Mount Pelerin society to the left, Jody Dean for a return to the party form. While this debate remains unsettled, and it is a live debate, it has already remapped in some ways, in some significant ways, the terrain for left activism. So theorists and activists have restored in many ways, the promise of institutionality, largely abandoned in the post-1968 era, pointing to sites of activist, for, for activist mobilization that have been off the table for decades. So this has played out most evidently on the site of electoral politics. So Momentum, for example, is pursuing this socialist strategy from within the ranks of the British Labour Party. The DSA and the Bernie Democrats are doing something similar in the US. But the state, broadly conceived, extends beyond the domain of government, 
across the institutional sectors for education, health, transportation, labor, culture. So it's far, it's, it's far from unconventional wisdom to argue that institutions like universities and museums function as ideological state apparatuses, mechanisms of soft power that index and interpolate us as individuals, consumers, and subjects of the capitalist state. The injunction to work in and against the cap capitalist state to turn state resources against this oppressive social relations they reproduce generates not just new ways of thinking about the state and its ideological apparatuses, but also new, a new perspective from which institutions can be seen. That is not as monolithic blocks of power that secure capitalist class power, but as sites of contestation split from within. So when we recognize the lines dividing institutions between the resources they hold and the relations they produce, or between the interests of the workforce and those of their management, it becomes possible to struggle over them. So I think we're, we're here today because we all believe that we need institutions for the left. And many of us work in institutions that could play a part in building a socialist alternative. Universities, high schools, museums, hospitals, you know. So the question that I want to ask is whether or not and at what cost do we work in against our places of work? So this uh, was the gambit of the sociology liberation movement which was a coalition of radical sociologists working in and against the American Sociology Association in the late 1960s and early 1970s. So recognizing the prominent role of military and industry in funding and instrumentalizing sociological inquiry, sociologists from UC Berkeley, Simon Fraser University, and others joined to tell bullshit on the status quo of their field. They produced a journal called this The Insurgent Sociologist to communicate and recruit new members. They organized truth squads to disrupt conferences and panels aligned with the interests of the imperialist state, shared reading lists from which to develop new courses in radical sociology, and rallied behind members who were punished by their university administration. So as the group writes in one newsletter, quote, the insurgent social sociologist cannot resolve his identity with the embrace of the American Sociology Association. He can only resolve his crisis if he accepts himself as first an insurgent and then as a sociologist. That he participates in insurgent institutions and puts his skills at the service of such institutions. So for the sociology liberation movement, the attention paid towards disrupting disciplinary norms and eliminating the power elite that controls the profession was linked at every step to the construction of alternatives to it. So it was both dissenting, you know, voicing kind of protest, but also constructing an alternative sociology when it would replace. So the insurgent sociology was not just a disruptor, but a producer of a new sociology that would unmask capitalist ideology at the same time that it would redefine sociology to, quote, correspond to social reality. With this redefinition, the group fashioned sociology as an ideological weapon that would not just tell the truth, but the truth that would point beyond the brutality of the capitalist state. So during the same period, other radical academic caucuses emerged in disciplines of philosophy, history, anthropology, and science, marking the contours of a broad movement to liberate the university from capitalist class interests. Most of these organized efforts were short-lived, too short-lived to make decisive advances, but they modeled the practice of institutional splitting the activists are revisiting today. So for example, the undercommoning project, uh, which is working largely in uh, North America, is quote, building a North American network of radical organizers within, against, and beyond the neoliberal and neocolonial university. The architecture lobby emerged in the past few years to build a, left, a general left culture within the architectural profession, where they lobby architects to say no to working with private prison, prisons or on Trump's southern border wall. Science for the People, which has a strong presence here, 
inherits the name of a group of radical scientists fighting against science's military and industrial investments in the 1960s and 70s, establishing working groups across the US that lift up and advance a vision of science for the common good. So the project that I'm involved with, that I'm just going to talk about very briefly to close, uh, the Natural History Museum works, works inside and against the Center for Science and Natural History Museums, organizing museum staff to confront their institution's alignments with the interests of uh, fossil fuel capitalism. So what did it mean, for example, for David Koch, co-owner uh, co of Koch Industries, which is among the lead, leading polluters in the U.S. and a major fighter of climate science disinformation? What did, it mean, what did it mean for him to occupy board positions at the American Museum of Natural History and the Smithsonian, two of the country's leading science institutions? So arguing that climate change deniers and fossil fuel industry executives had no business occupying leadership positions um, at science institutions. In 2015, we joined forces with top scientists from around the world and museum visitors to call on museums to get ties to fossil fuels. Our wager was that the popular desire for museums would be connected to a popular hatred of the corporate, authoritarian, meekicidal interests that have a seat at the governing table. We believe there were activists already working within the museums who shared our values, and that by applying pressure from outside, from outside, we can supply popular support for these unknown allies. So this is what we mean by institutional split. So following an open letter signed by dozens of the world's top scientists, a petition signed by more than 500,000 members of the public, countless press articles, and an exhibition that we did at the 2015 American Alliance of Museums annual conventions, which is the governing kind of structure for museums in the United States, Koch quietly walked away from the board of the American Museum of Natural History, where he had been a member for the previous 23 years. So for us, Koch was low-hanging fruit, and our aim in targeting him was less to knock him down than to draw out museum workers with which to organize. So over the past few years, we've seen an escalating, and this is really notable, increasingly self-organized struggle within the ranks of the U.S. museum sector. So last year, tenured staff at the American Museum of Natural History led a campaign to have Rebecca Mercer booted off the institution's board of trustees, and just the other day, workers at the museum collectively confronted their administration for agreeing to host a gala honoring the Brazilian president, Jair uh, uh, Bol Bolsonaro. Um, so as one museum worker stated in an anonymous blog post, quote, I am not surprised that the AMNH would take capitalist money to celebrate a fascist. But I will tell you what I and my fellow workers plan to do about it. We plan to protest loudly and for as long as it takes until the museum cancels this event. So now it's one thing to demand a museum to be less shit, right? And another to enlist museums in the struggle for a more just world for all. But what the increasingly emboldened actions of museum staff shows us is that these institutions are sites are, are sites of struggle. And by participating in these institutional struggles from the outside and from the inside, we can push them further and faster in our direction. So if as Stefano Harney and Fred Moten contend, there's an undercommons in the university. The same is true of every place of work. That is an alienated and dissenting excess, always at war, always in hiding. The history of insurgency in the institutions of education, science, and natural history tells us that the simmering institutional excess can be mobilized in the struggle for hegemony, but also that the struggle over institutions is already underway. They point to the latent potential of some of the capitalist state's social institutions to provide resources for the left. They also reveal how, if seized and redirected, such institutions could contribute to the general culture of opposition that will be necessary for broadening the social space. Thanks. Thank you.